If you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to turn with me actually to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Uh, if you can choose your translation or uh, you can probably find it online, uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, the NIV. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is the reading of God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Amen. Uh, well, if you follow us on social media, um, you know that we are launching a new sermon series uh, today through the book of James. Uh, I'm excited and scared at the same time to preach through this book because it's one of the most uncomfortable books uh, in the Bible. It's why a lot of pastors actually don't like preaching through it. There's a lot of, you should do this, you should, shouldn't do that. And I think, uh, especially for those of us who grew up in very legalistic church environments, uh, where you felt like you needed to live your life a certain way to be considered spiritual or holy, where you needed to look the part to be accepted, uh, James can be very triggering. Okay, uh, I grew up uh, in a church context where you had to wear a suit to service. Uh, you had to go to morning prayer every day. Uh, they printed in the bulletin what uh, every person gave for offering the previous week. There were all these things you needed to do to be considered a good Christian. And so the message was always Jesus plus all this other stuff equals salvation, right? Which is why when I heard the gospel for the first time, it was so freeing for me because it was the first time somebody told me God accepts me exactly as I am, with all my flaws and imperfections that I don't need to do anything to earn his love. And I think a lot of us have similar stories. But somewhere along that line, I think a lot of us convinced ourselves that a life of faith should be easy, that it shouldn't demand anything from us. And it's funny that we think that because we don't think that about anything else that's important in our lives. Like we understand intuitively that the things that matter most should be hard. Leadership should be hard. Parenting should be hard. Becoming an expert in your field should be hard. And yet, anytime we hear a pastor talk about obedience and commitment and dying to yourself and sacrifice, we immediately say, that's not the gospel. The gospel is about grace. But then you get a book like the book of James that says, faith without deeds is dead. Well, what do you do with that? You know, and throughout history, people really struggled with this. Uh, they say that Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation, he actually wanted to get rid of James from the Bible altogether because he felt like it ran contrary to this idea of salvation by faith alone. 
But I would argue that while, yes, it's true that the gospel is not ultimately about what we do, a gospel that doesn't actually lead to life change isn't good news at all. Because if following Jesus isn't making us more loving, more gentle, more compassionate, more gracious, then what's the point of all this, right? What's the point of believing any of this stuff if it doesn't actually change the way we talk to people, if it doesn't change the way we raise our kids or manage our money? And let me ask everyone here, if you took Jesus and the church out of your life, and I really want you to think about this, if you took Jesus and the church out of your life today, what would really change about you? Because if the only thing that would really change is that now you have an extra hour on Sunday morning for brunch or football, uh, there's really no point in believing this at all, okay? What God desires for all of us is not lip service. What God desires for all of us is a living, breathing, active faith. That at the end of our lives, what would be said about us is not how much money we made or how amazing our accomplishments were, but that we knew Jesus intimately and lived like it. And so what I hope we're going to begin to see as we go through this book over the next 10 weeks is that God is not trying to give us all these rules and directives to make us feel bad about ourselves or to shame us or to take something away from us. God, being the loving Father He is, is trying to lead us to something that's going to bring us more joy and more fulfillment than what the world promises, okay? Now, uh, if you notice, uh, the book opens with the line, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? I could literally preach a whole sermon on that one line, okay? Let me explain. Who is James? Uh, There are many different Jameses in the Bible, But history and tradition would tell us that this is none other than the biological brother of Jesus himself, okay? Born to Mary and Joseph, uh, who who came to be one of the four main pillars of the early church, along with Peter, Paul, and John. Now, why is this important? Well, notice James doesn't refer to himself as Jesus' brother, okay? He doesn't name drop Jesus as his older brother. Instead, he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, Okay, and I'm not talking about a servant in the way little brother, all little brothers are servants to their older brothers. Okay, I'm an older brother, so I know this very well. James isn't talking about that. He uses the word Lord, the Kyrios, okay, a word that was extremely politically charged because it was only a word used of the Roman Empire. Uh, and this is significant because Jesus was not just a guru James admired from a distance. Like, James shared a bathroom with Jesus, okay? James was Jesus' younger brother. He watched what Jesus was like when he was up close and personal. Uh, He watched what Jesus was like when he was stressed and under pressure. Like, if one day somebody writes a biography about your life, the last person you would want to write that biography would be a family member, right? Why? Because they know everything about you. Right? You know what the hardest part of being a pastor is, especially during COVID? It's having to listen to myself preach every week while sitting next to my wife. Okay, Because everything I say, Carol is sitting right next to me being like, oh, really? Right? Like, you, you believe that. Like, that, that's really what you believe because that's not what you said yesterday. Right? Very annoying. Okay, but... Uh, you know, this is, the, this is the reality of what it means to, to be married in ministry, right? Uh, my little brother 
is a bona fide celebrity right now, okay? And I always laugh because I get these crazy DMs from his fans who say things to me like, your brother is the most amazing man in the world. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, he's a great guy, but he also comes over and eats my ruffles, right? I have a perspective that nobody else has. James heard everything Jesus preached. He heard Jesus teach about loving your enemies, turning the other cheek. James heard what everyone said about Jesus. And so for James to say, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's James saying, I know this man better than anyone else. I know his deeds. I know his character. I know the way he lives his life in private. And he is who he says he is. He's the real deal. He is the Lord, the Kyrios. Okay, so everything I'm about to teach you, I've seen it lived out firsthand. And I guarantee you, a life like this is worth it. Okay, and James, uh, he doesn't waste too much time on the in introduction. He says greetings and then he gets right into it. Okay. And the first thing he tackles is super heavy. It's how to face trials in this life. In other words, James is saying the first thing you have to understand in order to have a living, breathing, active faith is that God is going to allow some things into your life that may not feel good, but that are necessary for your growth. And James is going to show us what James is going to show us is that navigating every trial in this life big or small, comes down to one thing. It comes down to perspective, okay? And really, when you think about it, so much of how we experience life is a matter of perspective, isn't it? Like a 600-square-foot apartment in L.A. is a mansion to someone from New York. That same apartment is a closet to someone from Indiana, okay? Perspective. Right? This past week, I FaceTimed my grandma because I knew she missed the kids and, and she's 92 years old and we obviously didn't want to put her health at risk in this season, so I FaceTimed her. It's crazy that my grandma knows how to use FaceTime. Uh, but in Korean, I said, Grandma, th this year is so hard, huh? And she was like, boy, I lived through colonization and the Korean War. Okay, I was running for my life, carrying one baby on my back and pregnant with another. This isn't that bad. Okay, perspective, right? And you know who lacks the most perspective? Children, because they haven't experienced the gauntlet of life, right? How many of us have heard our parents say, one day when you're a parent, you will understand. And how many of us parents are now remembering what our parents said to us thinking they were right? Because there were things in our lives that we, we couldn't ever learn from a textbook or a class. You just had to experience it yourself. And it sucks to say this, but the primary way that we gain perspective is through suffering. We have to be stretched and stretched to our limits, and this is how faith works. All of us are spiritual infants, and it is only through trials, and as James calls it, through the testing of our faith that God brings us to maturity and completion. We see this all throughout the Bible. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, it says this, And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that uh, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is exactly what James is getting at. If you notice verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if, but when you face trials of many kinds. In other words, don't be surprised when trouble hits your life because no matter what you try to do to avoid it, no matter what insurance you get, trials are unavoidable. We don't know what or how or when, which is why he doesn't specify what kinds of trials. He just says trials of many kinds. But the only thing that is certain is that they will come. Okay, I don't need to convince anybody on this Zoom chat of this in 2020 because this year is one big trial for all of us. Okay, when the earthquake hit like a few days ago, I literally was like, Lord Jesus, come take me. It's time, right? Like uh, this year has been wild. Some of us are going through relational issues with our family members. Some of us are navigating grief and loss. Just this past week, I was on the phone with several of our church members whose parents were just diagnosed with late-stage cancer. You know, you have unemployment, you have loneliness, working from home with kids, not being able to open your business, like extroverts not being able to be around people for the past eight months. Okay, like introverts are rejoicing, but the extroverts are really having it tough this year. And we're seeing all of this starting to take its toll. And James is saying, when you find yourself in the midst of a year like 2020, he says, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You see, trials can either make you better or make you bitter. Okay, Trials have a way of exposing what your heart really desires. If your anchor in life is financial security, if that is the thing that drives you to get up every morning, then when you lose that, your life will feel meaningless. If your anchor is in a relationship and then you lose that relationship or you feel like that relationship is on shaky ground, I guarantee you, your life will feel like it's on shaky ground. And that's what trials do. They make you question, what is it that I really love? Right? This is what tests are. They are ways for us to evaluate whether or not we have actually internalized the knowledge we've received. Right? You say you believe God is good. It's easy to believe that when your company is thriving. Do you believe it when your company is tanking? Do you believe it when your dad's in the hospital? Do you believe it when your marriage is on the rocks? You see, adversity is not a sign that God is absent. It's a sign that God is active. Okay, let me say that again. Adversity is not a sign that God is absent. It's a sign that God is active. Verse 4 says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, these trials are necessary for God to complete His work in us, to conform us into the image of His Son. You know, this week I was watching an interview with Kobe and they asked him what the most defining moment of his career was. You know what he said? He didn't say the 81-point game. He didn't mention any of his championships or his many buzzer beaters. He talked about one game during his rookie year against the Utah Jazz when the game was on the line and they put the ball in his hands and he airballed. 
Not once, not twice, not three times, four straight air balls in a must-win playoff game. And he talks about how everyone the next day was ripping him. The media was calling him overrated. Uh, They were saying that the bright lights of LA were too much for him. And he could have folded. He could have given up. He could have allowed that failure to crush him. But he says in this interview that he used that as fuel and motivation to work on his game even harder. And they say it was that game where Mamba mentality was born. His desire had to be tested. How much do you really want this? How much do you really want to be the best? And any loving parent knows there has to come a moment when you just have to let your kids fail. Sadly, our society is really bad at this, right? We've all heard about snowplow parents who coddle their kids. I know many of us on this Zoom chat, if we're honest with ourselves, that's us, okay? Uh, you know, who will do everything in our power, who try, to, who, who, who try to keep our kids from experiencing failure and disappointment at all costs. And then these kids enter the real world that is full of failure and disappointment, and they have no idea how to navigate it because they haven't developed the proper perspective. So you see, when God allows trials into our lives, when he allows us to experience grief and rejection and loss, he's stretching us so that we become more resilient, more compassionate, more humble people. We all know that for muscles to grow, they have to tear first, right? First time I worked out, I could not move the next day. Every inch of my body was sore. Was that pain real? Absolutely. But in that moment, I had to remember that the pain I was experiencing was ultimately for my good. I had to put the pain into its proper perspective. And every day after that, I realized I was less sore. I actually started welcoming the soreness because I knew it meant the exercises were working. You see, it's a matter of perspective. Okay? Quick caveat. I'm not saying God causes our suffering. I'm not saying he orchestrates bad things to just happen in our lives. These things are inevitable in a fallen, broken world. But if we truly believe that God is sovereign, if we truly believe that God is loving, then we can be sure that even what the enemy intended for evil, God intended it for good. And this is why it makes sense that in verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. First time I read this, that confused me. Okay, if In my life, when things are falling apart, the last thing I ask for is wisdom. Right? I've, I've sat with many of you on Zoom and prayed with you uh, who are going through things right now, and I'm pretty sure I haven't really asked God for wisdom on your behalf. Usually, we ask for relief. We ask for comfort. We ask for peace. We ask for a better boss. We ask for an easier child. But it's as though James is saying what you need most in the midst of your trial is not for God to fix your problems. What you need most is for God to fix your perspective. Okay, let me say that again. What you need most in the midst of your trial is not for God to fix your problems. What you need most is for God to fix your perspective. And they say that wisdom is seeing all of life from God's perspective. Okay? So does that mean we shouldn't pray for our circumstances? No, of course we should, 
right? God says in Philippians 4, in all things by prayer and supplication, make all your requests known to God. Yes, we should absolutely pray for God to heal our family members. Yes, we should absolutely pray for God to comfort us in our loneliness. Yes, we should absolutely ask God for a spouse. But know this, God loves you too much to give you what you want when you want it. And so today, if you feel like God is not listening to you or he's not answering your prayers, it's not because he's not there or because he doesn't care. It's because he cares so much that he refuses to let your life be sourced by something other than himself. So you can pray and ask God to change your situation all you want, which you should. But unless you ask him to change you, Unless you ask him for wisdom, for a new perspective, it won't matter if you get a new job or a new set of friends. You're going to be dealing with the same exact issues. And God knows that. And so in his love, he will often allow difficult situations to linger a little bit longer than you would have hoped. Sometimes in his love, he will cut you off from your security blanket. In his love, he will allow you to fail. But here's where verse 5 is so comforting. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. When we ask God for a new perspective, he will give it to us. Okay? Now, I have to talk about the next few verses because they can be a little confusing. If you look at verse 6, it says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Okay? So does that mean I'm in a trial, and when I ask God for wisdom, I'm not allowed to doubt? Right? What, what does that mean? Right? I thought doubting was normal. I thought you said it was okay to doubt. What Christian has not wrestled with their faith and doubted God at some point in their life? Is that, is that what James is saying? And we know that's not what James is saying because the Greek word translated doubt here is a word that actually means double-mindedness. Okay, and James confirms this in verses 7 to 8 when he says, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In other words, when James talks about those who doubt, he's talking about people with split loyalties. Someone who wants to hedge their bets in two ways. Like they'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if someone else has something better, better to offer. Right? They'll look to the wisdom of the Bible but also the wisdom of the world. And James is saying that kind of person will never gain the perspective he or she needs to stand firm through trials. A person can never grow spiritually when they have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. You know, this past week, um, I was in a meeting that was going long. My, my daughter is in virtual kindergarten a couple days of the week, and she was hungry. And I said, Give me 10 minutes and I'll get you McDonald's, okay? I, want, I wanted to try the spicy chicken McNuggets too. And so just give me 10 minutes. And she says, you got it. 10 minutes later, I go downstairs and she's eating a cookie. And I'm like, what are you doing? I told you I was going to get you McDonald's. And she says, I was just having one just in case. And I'm thinking, just in case what? Just in case I don't feed you? Like, I'm the guy who puts a roof over your head. I feed you every single day, just in case what? And this is what we do with God. He tells us, trust me, I'm going to take care of you. 
I'm going to work these trials out for your good. And we say, well, just in case, let me take matters into my own hands. Just in case, let me take control of this situation. Just in case God doesn't humble that person that's really annoying me these days, let me humble him. And God says, when you live like this, when you live with split loyalties, you will never mature into the resilient, persevering person I desire you to be. But you say, but really, that sounds great, but how can we trust these words? How can we believe that God is going to give us what we need to get through whatever trial we're going through? How can we really believe that he is working all things for our good? And I would say, how can we not? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, that word perseverance in verse 3 is the same Greek word found in Hebrews 12 when it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus stood firm in the midst of every trial thrown at him. There is nothing we are enduring right now or will ever endure in this life that Jesus hasn't endured himself. Rejection, he's endured it. Loneliness, he's endured it. Betrayal, exhaustion, he's endured it. And because he stood fast for us, we now possess the power to stand fast for him. What Hebrews 12 is saying is that we need a perspective shift. We need to look beyond our immediate circumstances, to look beyond our trials at the one who endured it all on our behalf. And in doing so, Jesus is not only the end goal, but he's also the means by which we reach that goal. Okay, On the cross, he not only secures for us what happens after this life, but he guarantees us his presence and grace amidst the trials of this life. Friends, I know um, it's been hard in 2020 to put things in their proper perspective because I know that for many of us, we feel like we're being stretched to the point of absolute breaking. Like we feel like that rubber band that can't be stretched any further. Okay, And I can tell you for myself personally that the past few weeks have been very rough. Um, I started looking for a counselor a few weeks ago because ministry and life were starting to take an emotional, mental toll on me. Uh, I was feeling like I wasn't doing enough as a leader, as a father, as a husband, as a friend. And, and I can tell you that all of this was exposing some very deep-seated beliefs I was holding inside about myself and about God that I never really addressed. And there were these moments of self-doubt when I wondered if God was even there or if he was even listening to me, okay? And I have to tell you, uh, reading this passage this week was so comforting to me because it was a reminder that I could receive all of these trials as painful as they were with joy, knowing that God was using them to make me more like him. That the same God who stopped at nothing to save us would use everything, our pain, 
our deficiencies, our failures, to draw us nearer to Him is an amazing truth we can hold on to this morning. Friends, this is our confidence and hope. And so today, may we ask God to restore in us the joy of our salvation, that we might not see our trials as obstacles, but as opportunities to once again experience God's unfailing love for us. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that this year has been so difficult. Um, I can't remember the last time in any of our lives when, when our entire church uh, could honestly say we were collectively going through some kind of trial. And I, I know for some of us, the, the trials are, are larger than others. Some of us are navigating some huge transitions, uh, some, some uh, huge um, sources of trauma and grief and loss. And God, um, I know that uh, it's, it's been so painful for us to have to navigate so much of this alone, so much of this isolated uh, from community, uh, but thank you for this reminder this morning that our hope uh, is not in our finances. Our hope is not in our ability or our own strength, but our hope is in, is in you and in what you've done for us on the cross. And so this morning, I pray that our entire church and every person on the Zoom chat would fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith the one who endured the cross, who endured every trial and stood fast so that we might have the power to stand fast in whatever we're going through right now. Lord, would you continue to uh, give us strength, give us grace, give us your mercy, give us a renewed perspective as we go on with our weeks, as we navigate the difficulties of this life. May we place our confidence and our assurance in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.